across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour for an hour of local food and drink news with Sue Bailey and me, Alan Alder. Uh, Matt Bentman can't be with us today, but uh, he'll be back next time. And if you're pining to hear his voice, there are lots of Flavour podcasts you can enjoy until then. Uh, But today's programme is very much about the community side of food. Yes, we hear about the possible changes coming to Cambridge Market, news about the stopping of the food vans at Clay Farm and the importance of both to the communities they serve. We'll give a mention to the new market at Trumpington Meadows too, but we've had to hold Matt's feature on that over to the next programme. Dave Fox will be here to give us advice on harvesting your produce. We'll get some ideas for strawberry jam from Rosie Sykes too and from Nazima Pathan on what to do with gooseberries. We have the very first episode of Andrew Webb's Historical Bookshelf too, featuring a food book by Charles Darwin's grandson. And as usual, we also have lots of food and drink news. We did uh, a feature here on Flavour a while ago about the proposed reorganisation of Cambridge Market. There's a consultation on it going on now and it ends on the 7th of July. The idea is to improve the look of the market, to improve the surface, uh, partly so it can be cleaned more easily, and also to replace the stalls with demountable stalls, that is, ones that can be taken down and removed at the end of the day's trading if there's an event wanting to use the market square. I must say, having occasional events there would be a good thing. The market square is a great central place, it just isn't used at night. But there are drawbacks as well as benefits. I spoke with Julia and Tracy at the Emerald Food Stall. Tracy, are people saying much about the potential changes to the market? Yes, they are, if they're aware of the situation. The problem is um, the public consultation for the redevelopment of the market closed on the 7th of July. And unfortunately, people are just not aware of it. We've got some posters on our stall and people look at those posters that they're finding out about it. And what are they saying? The biggest percentage of them are actually shocked that the council want to do such a drastic thing as demountable stools. Yeah, we're, we're not, they're saying that they agree with us, that the market needs tidying up, but, you know, there should be some sort of compromise. Our, our own stool has been um, customised for our needs. We've got um, special shelving that we've had um, done. It's all welded on. We've got um, seriously um, hard, um, heavy-duty benches. Um, we've got you know, every single spare millimetre of this stool is being used and it's been adapted for our own needs and that's the case with a lot of traders. Heavy duty, serious businesses like ourselves, they just wouldn't work. Yeah, they just wouldn't work. The stools would be too lightweight. It, it, it would be impossible for us to run our business the way we are doing from these stools, I feel. But we do feel also that there is a compromise that could be made. So what's that then? So, and, and have, and, you, ta- and, and have yeah. you told the council? Yeah, we have. We have, yeah. yeah. Um, they, are, they are listening to us. 
what we're proposing is um, so the backbone of the market the stalls that are here kind of rain or shine in all weathers a minimum of five days a week what we're proposing is they keep they keep a percentage of the market footprint as a static market kind of in the style that it is now but obviously very much improved and um, we feel like the footprint of the market was reduced made into a static market as it is that way the market would always be full because those traders are always here and then the traders that do less than five days or come and go casually they could use these dismantable stores for those sort of traders in which case the market would always be full it would just be a different size every day and then at the weekends when the market's at 100% capacity you'd have like the permanent part which is always full anyway Monday to Saturday and then the people that come at the weekends can still trade if it takes you I know it takes you a long time to set up and presumably clear away at the end of the day but if the if the council's talking about about having events here yeah is the timing going to well, be a problem? Well, that's the other thing, you see. You know, like, um, we get here we get here at about 7 o'clock every morning, and it takes us, some days it takes us up until 10 o'clock, like it is now, to fully set the stool up. So in the mornings, if there's an event from the night before, I'm guessing that the stool's going to have to be re-erected. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take or whether the stalls will, will even be you know, ready for us when we get here. And the same again in the evenings. I mean, I don't know what time these events are going to begin, but it's going to take time for the market traders to clear. It's going to take time for them to erect the, um, erect the, you know, the, the event staging or whatever. So, you know, a lot of traders on here are trading until, I mean, for example, Martin on the bike store, he's, he's here long, long after we've left and we leave about sort of Quarter past five, half five. Oh, really? yeah. So you know, are our businesses going to be compromised as a result of these events? You know, having to reduce to, your trading yeah, or are we going to have to yeah. like leave at like two o'clock so that they can put on events that happens? Yeah. You know, and there's talk of them um, staging maybe Christmas events and things. You know, and for a lot of people on here, Christmas is their kind of bread and butter. So are we going to have to like clear our stalls for Christmas week? I mean, yeah, there's loads of we're we're not um, we're not anti improvements you know we're not anti-change we just want it done properly and you know when, when it's done it's done and i think we we all feel really i mean we've put our heart and souls into our business as a, a lot of people on here and the locals we just don't want it lost so we what sort it. of things are your customers saying then <laughs> i don't know if i can repeat them <laughs> They're kind of on the same wavelength as us. Yeah. Well, they, I, I heard somebody just now saying the market's the best reason for living exactly. in Cambridge. So. It's quirky. It's got, you know, it's like an outdoor supermarket with people, you know, and during the pandemic especially, it's been highlighted even more so how important it is to people. You know, it's important for shopping. It's important for, like, the community for so many reasons. And, and socialisation for a lot of people, you know, especially during the lockdown when people... They're living on their own. They'd come in, have a little chat, get their shopping, and you know we appreciate it, and they appreciate us too. So it's good for social fabric. Yeah, yeah. I know the market. You know the market is a little bit raggedy looking. You know it does need improving, cleaning, cleaning up. But the, I think one of the main um, ways that could improve this market is to film the market <laughs> during the week. You know it, it looks worse because there's a lack of traders at the moment. But you know um, it's just part of Cambridge. Yeah. You know, and it's just you know, it'd just be a real shame if part of Cambridge was lost forever, and you know, Cambridge just ends up being like any other city. You know, it's getting that way already with all the chain stores. And, you know, it's just it'd be nice to preserve a bit of Cambridge. You know. 
Tracy's comment towards the end of that interview about people who may live alone getting some good social contact by having a chat at the market struck me as being really important. Markets are good for that reason, as well as often being outlets for local produce and opportunities for new local businesses. The opening of the market in Trumpeting Meadows is really important too, not least for that reason. Uh, We'll have a major feature on it in the next flavour. Meanwhile, if you want to contribute to the Market Square Development Consultation, you can find it online at Cambridge City Council's website. Uh, We'll post a link on Twitter too. The closing date is the 7th of July. Some news now. Foodstuff is doing free deliveries from 9.30am until 2pm from Monday to Wednesday. That's until the end of July. During lockdown, Mark Poynton of NJP at the Shepherds was producing and delivering lots of ready meals for reheating, and I enjoyed them on many occasions. But that's not all he was doing. Mark was also working on a book called It's Just Food. It's now available to pre-order from the publishers Away With Media. It covers some of the classics from his career and is written for both the home cook and the professional cook. The publication date is this autumn, though not before October. Hot Numbers in Gwider Street is open for takeaways only until further notice. Prompington Street branch and the Rosary in Shepworth both are open for sitting in. There's been a pretty big move towards plant-based milk in recent years, and one company, Oatly, is pretty ubiquitous. It's a a Swedish company, though part-owned by the American Blackstone Group uh, and China Resources, a conglomerate owned by the Chinese state, and several others. It's planning a factory in Peterborough to open in 2023. However, there is another producer of oat-based milk already in Cambridgeshire, and it's Glebe Farm near Huntingdon. Their product is called Pure Oaty. Uh, You can buy it at Meadows in Newnham. Uh, But Oatly has sought a legal injunction to stop them selling their brand, saying its branding infringes Oatly's trademark. Rhea Falvo, better known as Bumble and Oak, has started a petition against this and it's had a very impressive response with over 50,000 signatures so far. Uh, You can find a link to it on the Bumble and Oak Instagram page. Good news if you live in Histon. A new branch of Stir has opened. It's at number 10 School Lane. And that's our final news item for today. We'll have our usual jobs round up at the end of the programme and we'll be back to our usual extensive news service on our next programme on the 17th of July. Have you noticed that Flavours roundups of where food trucks are don't mention Hobson Square at Clay Farm anymore? That's because they've stopped. And that's after an email from the developers who had received a complaint from a resident. Uh, the, The developers said they had never given permission for the food trucks to be there. The people who organised the trucks, a group of volunteers called Clay Farm Food, were understandably distressed by this and launched a petition to get permission to get them back. Over 500 people have signed it uh, and comments include they bring a sense of community and good idea for bringing community spirit and the food trucks around Hobson Square make it feel a lot safer. I spoke to Dave Fox, who's not one of the volunteers but is a local resident, about how he felt when he heard they'd stopped trading. I feel really shocked um, and very disappointed and not not to say hungry on, on, <laughs> on, on some evenings. I mean, the, the food trucks that have been uh, organised uh, to come here by a small group of, of volunteers 
um, have been wonderful. They provide some variety in the local in the local cuisine. You can just you can pre-order, you cycle up, collect your stuff. From my point of view, they all do a vegetarian option, some better than others, but um, that's 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 what I need. And we advertise Hanoi rice hat is fantastic. fantastic. Their, their their tofu purr is absolutely superb, and their spring rolls. So I'm there every time they come. So yes, yeah, so I'm really disappointed. I mean, one really nice thing about the food trucks is you get the variety of different mm. different cuisines. So if I want Mexican, then I just have to wait a few days. And now chili arrive. And if I want Thai, then it's going to be a handle rice hat. And if I want burgers, then um, steak and honour will come. So, um, and then pimp my fish, who have a, have a vegan option as well. So, um, yeah, um, it's a real shame that uh, the people of Trumpington are suddenly being denied, being denied this. And it's also a real shame for these these food businesses because, of course, with the um, restrictions over the last year and a half, they've lost all their events. And there are other significant benefits too to the local community. Here's Carol, one of the people behind the community garden, a lovely area that's there at Clay Farm for all to enjoy. The food trucks donate a percentage of their takings to community funds and therefore the community garden has uh, profited by £750 worth of plants which were donated from the funds raised from the trucks and also a £500 donation has been given to the food hub. So this uh, effort is not only providing a food service to the community, but it's also providing funds for community uh, organisations and needs. And, and it helps also with volunteers, bringing volunteers to the garden because they can see that there's some development now because there's been so many years of delay. And now we now have a garden that actually looks like a garden, even though it hasn't actually been completed. The community garden is another way in which the sense of community at Clay Farm is nurtured. There's a weekly picnic there in summers on Thursdays, at which a food truck can attend, using the PowerPoint provided by the developer, Countryside Properties. The garden itself can help people overcome any sense of isolation they may have. Very relevant in a new community, especially during lockdown. Here's Carol again. I mean, we're hoping that, that we can uh, get some social prescribing from the medical centre as well. What, so what's that? That, that is so that if, if people have problems and they don't necessarily see a lot of people, they can come to the garden, they can do things, they can talk to people if they want to, and garden, gardening actually generates quite a lot of conversation. Mm. Um, yeah, so... It, you know, I think I think it's really important for, for community engagement yeah, in yeah. in order to bring people together, particularly in an area like this, which is all new build, mm. and people mm. don't mm. know each other mm. unless they might happen to have dogs or small children. children. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it helps to resolve social isolation. But why were the food trucks, which have helped to fund all of this, stopped? And who is trying to sort it out? The parking bays, which they need permission to use, and the streets are the responsibility of the county council, except for the side that's still under construction, and that is still the responsibility of the developers' countryside properties. It all seems simple enough, asked the county council and the, and the developers for permission to reinstate the trucks, allowing them to use a parking bay. I approached the developers' countryside and the local councillor, Olaf Hauk, to ask them about it. 
Just before I spoke to Olaf on Thursday, we both received a communication from Countryside saying there had been a misunderstanding about permission not being granted, and it was express permission that had not been given. The developer was neutral on the issue. The communication goes on to say what Clay Farm Food, quote, have assumed wrongly is that the absence of express permission means that we withhold our consent, which we do not. We are simply neutral on the matter. And a little later, the uh, communication goes on, perhaps incorrectly, I had envisaged a rather tacky burger van creating nuisance, litter and a parking hazard, but I hope this can be cleared up quickly. And the letter finishes, Once satisfied with the above, I am minded to allow you to utilise the bay surrounding Hobson Square on the clear understanding that I am not granting any form of lease, licence or other permanent right, and that, where possible, consideration is given to the immediate residents. I spoke to Councillor Olaf Hauck, who had been on the case, about his perceptions. I'm actually quite convinced that these food vans are legit. They have all the licenses and uh, registration. I've talked to several residents, including a complainant. So we actually talked about this together on site on Hobson Square on Monday. Um, And there was also another person from the same building, very close to these food vans, who was very happy about the food van. So opinions differ even within that part of, of the building. From an environmental health and health and safety issue, everything is fine. You would expect events like that at a square like Hobson Square. I mean, it's a public square. Uh, And as the recent petition has shown, um, over 500 people have now signed within a few days. I mean, these food vans are just very popular in the community. I mean, they provide a very important service, I think, to the community. It's good for the community's well-being. It might reduce antisocial behavior on the square because it just brings people there. You know, there's just life there. So it's not going to be filled by people who don't really have anywhere else to go. You know, let's, let's put it that way. The issue won't go away, though, until a permanent solution is found. The food trucks need somewhere to park and parking bays will be all under the control of the county council. Olaf again. I mean, we would, of course, do our best to make this work. But as I can only emphasize, so at the moment, we can only say we obviously support this community activity. Uh, we, we really think the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. But of course, if at some point it turns out that people can't, can't go to the, to the surgery because the parking bays are blocked, then we have to see to look for alternatives. I mean, there are different constraints there are different interests there and we just have a very close look at that and, and monitor that but at, at the moment we definitely support yes I mean, we're talking about a single parking bay aren't we yeah uh, but a single parking bay and there aren't many i mean I, I'm, I'm now hard pressed to say how many exactly there are but uh, obviously we, we have to look into this i mean i'm not i'm not saying it is a deadly issue i'm, I'm just saying all these things these uh, have to be taken into account but we yeah. will definitely uh, work towards a solution. And for example, finding a space that wouldn't take a parking bay. I mean, that would be the best solution. Electricity supply to reduce the noise and finding a place even a bit further away from the buildings, uh, possibly on Hobson Square. Um, you know, uh, I think that would be the ideal solution. Um, but again, we have to deal with all the stakeholders there and the different constraints. Well, there are reasons to be at least tentatively cheerful. We'll keep our eye on it and many thanks to James from Clay Farm Food for his help with this feature. Here 
here where we remind you that you can get free food now in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of being binned at the end of the day's trading. Now, a couple of short items about fruits that are in season and what you can do with them. First up, Rosie Sykes talks to Alan about strawberry jam. With strawberries, the things that I think are really, really nice are pink peppercorns, fig leaves, lemon verbena. So all of those are, well, I mean, obviously pink peppercorns you can get anytime, but the other two are, you know, they're they're sprouting beautifully at the moment. So it's the perfect time to, to use either of those. And what I would do with them, with the fig leaves or with the lemon verbena, is put sort of whole branches or whole big leaves in while I'm cooking the jam so that I can just lift them out. And I lift them out while the jam's still really hot so that all of the extra jam drips off them and then discard them. And another really helpful tip is that once you've made the jam um, and it's at setting point, to make sure your fruit distributes nicely, it's worth leaving the jam for about 40 minutes, depending on the heat outside or the heat of the day or the heat of your kitchen for about 40 minutes so that the jam is starting, is quite, is cooling and um, starting to set. And then you should get the fruit more evenly distributed because it's always a bit sad when you either get it all at the top or all at the bottom. That was Rosie Sykes. And if you didn't hear her last time, Rosie says that she finds adding sugar to the fruit the night before making is the best thing. She uses jam making sugar and the recommendation is anywhere from 750 grams to one kilo of sugar per kilo of fruit. Another fruit that's in season is gooseberries. Here's Nazima Pathan with some ideas for them, talking to Alan in 2016. Right, Nazima, I'm delighted that the gooseberry season is is here with us. But uh, as a change from just stewing them, which I tend to do rather too Mm -hmm. much, what what are the alternatives? So so there's quite a lot of uh, interesting ways. And, of course, as um, it's also elderflower season, there's a good way of combining two very complementary and very English flavours into desserts. So classically, of course, people like gooseberry fall. Um, But you could instead use elderflower cordial or fresh elderflower and poach it in a syrup or make your own and use that to make the fall to sweeten the cream and then layer poached gooseberries on top, for example. Another nice combination of gooseberry and elderflower is in a meringue. So you could use um, elderflower cordial to sweeten the cream, poach the gooseberries um, and then layer that up with some meringue. So very quick, very summery dessert, perfect for picnics, quite portable and I think a really nice seasonal flavour. And finally, on my gooseberry elderflower run, is these um, an idea by Diana Henry, which is essentially getting some posh ready-made custard, getting and then cooking up a bit of a compote with some gooseberries and, and elderflowers in a syrup, and then essentially you puree that up. You take out the elderflowers, obviously, puree that up, make the, and then you compote and layer that with some custard into lolly moulds, and that'll make a lovely summery uh, cooler. So those are some ideas. I mean, the combination of gooseberry and elderflower is extraordinary, yeah, isn't sort it? sort of the floral as well as the sort of slightly tart. I think it's, it's yes, lovely, isn't it? Is it is a very wonderful scented. combination. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it goes well with other herbs. So there's a couple of recipes with lemon thyme and thyme. Um, and again, you can, they're, they're herbs that are, you know, 
classic really nice and seasoned at the moment there's a, uh, a cake recipe where essentially you make a, a sponge cake with some almonds in as well as flour put the gooseberries into that so bake gooseberries into the cake in the same way as you would with any other fresh fruit cake and then make a syrup with lemon and some lemon thyme leaves so it's like a drizzle and then drizzle it over which i think is again it's a really good. interesting summery flavor so I, I just like the idea of herbs with fruit um, and I know you know for example in the summer sometimes we'll do basil with blueberries goes very nicely so you could do a sort of basil syrup into some whipped cream with blueberries in a trifle that also goes nicely so this sort of playing around with herbs is good gooseberries aren't just for sweet dishes they can also be used in savoury dishes and of course Ottolenghi is the master of adding interesting flavours to any sort of uh, traditional things that we'd eat so one of the things he's got um, in his Guardian column is a recipe for gooseberry slaw. And um, what he does is, is that he, you'll, you'll trim that and chop it up and mix it up with cabbage, onion, carrots, mongetous, all thinly sliced. And then he flavours his with his lovely Asian flavours. So he's got a bit of lime juice, a little bit of fish sauce, ground nut oil, some Thai basil. And I can imagine that would be just fantastic. Quite often there's a few people that will, you know, serve up mackerel with gooseberry. So perhaps that's a good flavour combination. So fried, pan fried mackerel. But he also suggests it would go very nicely with fried chicken, lamb barbecued tofu and um, we've got a recipe for barbecued tofu on our on our blog on frongley kitchen but certainly you know it's an easy thing to do if you've got firm tofu and then sort of this kind of strong flavor might go very nicely with it so that would be a really interesting summer vegan dish mm. the other thing he does is of course make a salsa because I, I do think that gooseberries are a bit like the sort of um, tamarillos that you can't find so easily here but in north america sort of sour green uh fruit oh, that's more like a tomato variant but um so you could make a really nice salsa and the way he does that is that he oven dries the um uh gooseberries for a little bit with some olive oil sugar and chili and some sea salt and then he mixes that in with some celery and, and herbs, celery leaves, mint leaves, parsley, and then some chili, lemon juice, and olive oil. And, and interestingly, he adds a little bit of elderflower cordial into that as well. So clearly, that is a good combination. So, so there's some savoury ideas, um, and I think you know, hopefully, people will try and use it because it's a, it's not an easy fruit. It's a bit like rhubarb, I guess. You have to do something with it. You can't just eat it straight. But it is worth it because it's such a yes. Well, you can't eat the green fruit. ones straight, but I mean, you can buy yes, dessert ones, ones, red ones. Yes, I mean, they're yes. a lot more expensive, yes. but they are, you know. Delicious. Every bit is wonderful. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I think I think gooseberries aren't as common as they were because yeah. I think picking them is quite a labour-intensive process. Right. Yes, and let's hope they don't. Yeah, let's hope they don't disappear in the way of other traditional berries. But uh, and also, uh, I think it's worth noting as well that the season is very short. Mm. So I think we should say to everybody, if Go you haven't, now. that's uh, right. So it's a good idea yet. to do that for this month because um, you know there's many things in season at this time of year. But the, if it's a short season, people should enjoy it because it's it is Get fullest flavour. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very no much, Susie. That's you. wonderful. Mm. We're off for a two-minute break now, and when we return, Dave Fox will be here talking about harvesting what you've grown, when you know your crop is ready, how to collect it, and which fruit plants will produce more fruit if you pick them. Welcome back to Flavour. Uh, Dave Fox from Trumpington Allotments pointed out the other day that he talks on Flavour extensively about what to do to get your food plants to grow well and be productive, but he hasn't talked about harvesting. You may think, well, don't you just dig it up or pick it? Well, yes and no. Here's a Dave to advise on how to deal with the crops that are currently or about to be ready to eat. 
Dave, there's quite a lot of things ready for harvesting at the moment. Have you got any advice on harvesting? Isn't it a brilliant time of year, Alan? It's uh, just after midsummer. So many crops are ready and about to become ready. So uh, the general principle with, with harvesting your food crops is to, just to remember the the plant wants to reproduce, to make seed, to spread. But what we're trying to do is to intercept the food value of plant when it when it's at its best, which is just before it enters a, 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 its reproductive um, stage. So examples will be a cucumber, which grows a nice, a nice fruit with just some seeds starting to de- develop inside, um, but with a fairly tender skin. So we nab it there. Whereas if you leave it a day or two, then the skin starts to harden off, the seeds start forming, and we've, it's probably still edible, but it isn't going to taste so great. We've, we've missed, the, missed the boat. Um, as far as harvesting at its best is concerned so so that's the general principle but of course you you know for, for especially for novice gardeners it's a little hard to recognize when that optimal moment for harvesting is and uh, it's especially more difficult for for crops that grow below the ground so root crops you can't see them so then you need to uh, pay attention to other hints as to when your crop is ready an ex- a good example would be potatoes, which I've, I've just started harvesting. We, we can have, have a look in a minute if you want. One thing to bear in mind is when you expect the crop to be ready, which would be for an early early potato, maybe 11 to 12 weeks after, after planting it, perhaps a little later this year because we had that very cold April, which slowed things down a little bit at the start. But with potatoes, what you want to do is look at the flowers. So when they flower that happens to be the point when the tubers are swelling so ideally there's going to be some heavy rain showers then and there were this year (laughs) so hoping for some really good early potatoes Um, but don't dig them just yet wait for those flowers to fall off and that's the time to dig your first potatoes and have a look and what you'll probably find is um, a number of potatoes smaller than egg size but they'll be really tasty and that's your first crop don't dig them all wait for the others to carry on swelling while the soil is moist and then dig them all over over a few weeks with main crop potatoes probably just wait until the foliage has died off so have a look at the state of the foliage and that and some knowledge of the variety will tell you when your potatoes are likely to be really already underground you can always have a little look just have a, have a rummage around get your get your hands in there and uh, and see what see what's developing but the, but when you um use potatoes that are, are very young so these ones are mm. about the size of a, an egg they taste different do they oh they're fantastic uh, they're, they're sweet they're creamy they're just absolutely awesome they've barely got skin on them, so you just mm. rinse some of the soil off and rub them rub them with that rub them with your hands and then straight into a, a, a quick boil or even steam them we had our first few days ago and just steamed them and they were absolutely terrific with a bit of mint of course with with some with summer crops um keep picking them keep picking them don't so things like peas and beans? Yeah, peas, uh, beans, um, cucumbers, courgettes. Uh, this is another example where we are trying to get something that's good to eat and hopefully that plant will then make more. Now, a good healthy courgette plant can make as many as 20, 20 fruits, all lovely and tender. But if you leave one on there to get too big, turn into a marrow for a a courgette turns into a marrow almost um, then the plant's going to think ah well I'm making some nice seeds here job done 
can't be, can't be bothered to make any any more any more courgettes. I'll now, I'll now focus on putting my resources into the into the into this marrow and especially into the seeds um, inside it. Another example of that principle would be the leafy crops like spinach and chard. Because keep picking the leaves and then more leaves will come. So pick early and keep on picking aggress- quite aggressively not quite the right word but maybe you know what I mean um, enthusiastically yeah yeah <laughs> but then beans will be the same when you're picking them for green beans so um, we're talking uh, runner beans and and French beans here um, on the other hand of course if you're growing for drying beans then leave them on the plant and harvest them hopefully when they're nice and dry in August or maybe early early September yeah. so you want to be clear about what you're trying to do there so what about bolotti beans then yeah yeah so I, I grow those for drying beans because and you can have them fresh as well can't you can you? you can eat them fresh but then there's uh, probably at the, well yeah absolutely yeah eat half of them fresh eat half of them for drying mm. I, I think the the food value of dried beans bolotti's in particular is absolutely terrific we, we don't get a lot of protein from the veg plot I mean, other than the odd creature that makes its way into the, into the into the pot so that's why i like to leave all of my borlottes for drying and use a uh, tastier french bean type or runner bean for, for, the, for the green beans um but, so keep on picking them another thing to mention about getting things just when their food value is optimal slight problem with that is that the day before the food value was optimal, something else has come along and had a go. So slugs and pigeons and all the um, badgers and everybody else that we share share the allotment with has come and had a go because it's also very good at recognising when the when the food value of a, of a crop is there. Um, so keep your eye on things, watch out for pests, and don't be afraid to harvest a little bit early because with a lot of these crops, more will come. What, what about what about strawberries? I picked a few um, just before you arrived actually can I show you these hopefully this is a Covid compliant way of sharing sharing strawberries <laughs> they're, they're, they're rinsed in tap oh, they water look fant- they Maybe look for, fantastic yeah. this, this variety is called Alice and uh, you get the, take the large take the large one go on. you're too polite Alan. Go on. <laughs> well yeah. I, I took that one because I thought <laughs> it was very ripe mm. Mm. well they're very nice aren't they mm. so strawberries hopefully God. it's fairly obvious um when they're when they're fully ripe you get this deep red color all over the fruit um and that's when you pick but keep on picking so my strawberries i pick them at least every two days at at this time of year and that stimulates more flowering then doesn't it yeah absolutely one other little comment about strawberries is that if you're picking them for jam for jam making which is what i'm doing at the moment don't be afraid to pick some that are half ripe with a bit of, bit of green still on them because they have a higher pectin content um, so when you want to jam to say you want a bit of pectin so keep on yeah don't yeah and if you accidentally pick some green ones don't worry they all go they all get they all go in another little principle i would say is uh, related to the idea of harvesting when crops are young and tender because when we get them out young there's less pest damage but also we're making space for the next crop Whereas with the, the runner beans, we're picking to make the same plant produce more. With the um, early beetroot or early carrots or, or, or radish, we're getting them out of the ground so I can get another crop in. So harvest them mid-summer. And then right now there's opportunities to sow lots more stuff. Um, so just um, pak choy, kohlrabi, you can still put carrots in, you can still put beetroot. If it cools down a little bit, more, more le- lettuce. So there's, there's lots, lots of things can be sown first two weeks of july 
it's the last chance for, for summer crops. Another thing to watch for is onions. So if you've got overwintered onions in, then you're going to harvest them when they're not completely dried out. And I'm, I'm digging those at the moment. Um, you wait for the foliage to fall away, start to dry out, and at that point, so after midsummer actually, is the, is the time when the root is not the the, um, the bulb is not going to swell anymore because it's a day length dependent um, crop. Um, so you want to get those out and start using them. Use them, cook everything, cook everything you possibly can with them because you're going to want to use them all up because they won't store. Um, however, the uh, summer sown onions, the ones that went in in March or April, you're going to uh, harvest them a little bit later, probably end of August maybe, uh, early September. So you want to harvest them when they are dry and you can tell that by the foliage having completely dried out and, flo and flopped over and ha hopefully harvest them on a, on a dry day. And with any luck, your onions um, are dry enough with a thin, a thin stem and that's dried out and they're going to store through the winter and you might still be using your onions in, in February um, in February if you if you're lucky if you've got enough in if you've got enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so oh one thing about um, harvesting onions is get a fork under them and lift them fairly carefully it's quite tempting they, they often sit quite loose in the in the ground and it's quite tempting just to yank them out if you do that you're going to break the roots and that gives the potential for um, disease to get in so just be a little bit um, careful with them lift them out with a bit of respect <laughs> knock the knock the soil off and uh, let them dry in the in the sun so hopefully a nice warm sunny couple of weeks in September is the time when you're drying mm. off the onions and getting ready to put them into into store um, so yeah great do you want to have a look at the potatoes yeah, should we just have a yeah. have a quick look and see what we've got under there because I, I dug some about five days ago and they were good but they were small another strawberry for we mentioned earlier that with the uh, potatoes we're taking our, our cue mostly from the foliage because we can't see underground that's flowers or, or rather this is where the flowers have fallen off in the in the row next to them i can still see one flower that's just finishing and about to fall off so um yeah and in the other rows just a few a few flowers left so we're we're certainly at the point where it's worth um uh, it's worth digging them up so one gets a fork, sticks it in the ground a fair way away from the plant because of course the well, a fair way from the stems of the plant because of course the tubers do grow out sideways from the um, from the main stem and we don't want to stick our fork through the tubers. So fork in just lift the plant a little bit and as you can see the the stem starts to starts to lift up and that's so what I'm what I'm aiming to do here is to get the whole plant exposed um, rather than going at it piecemeal. Mm. I think the, the difference in scale between this and farming, whether they're put in by a machine, they're sprayed by a machine, and then they're, li they're lifted up by, by yet, a, yet another machine, and tons and tons and tons coming out per minute, whereas here we're making a bit of a meal, or getting one meal's worth. Anyway, anyway. Oh, right, so I can see some small, right. small potatoes, and as I see them, I'm, I'm picking them off, because um, I don't want the small ones to get left in the soil so that's another little tip about potatoes do try and get them well if you don't then the potatoes winning with its reproduction strategy again because of course what it's trying to do is to leave some 
tuber clones of itself ready to grow grow the next year um, and the reasons we don't want really want that to happen are that um, first of all they can um, they can harbor they can harbor disease unlikely this early in the season but it can happen and also that uh, we're going to follow on in this bed with another crop next year and the growing potato plant being quite a strong vigorous plant uh, will compete with our crop mm. and then when we try and dig it out then we're probably disturbing the, the next crop so try, try to get all the potatoes out and the best way to do that is to lift the whole plant with hopefully most of the potatoes attached and they're not here they've fallen off anyway we've got that's a good one bigger than an egg here's another one oh, much, they're good, yeah. much bigger than a, a hen's egg that one's smaller here's a tiny one anyway just because they're tiny doesn't mean we don't take them out we, we definitely get them away from the plot and if you can't be bothered to cook and eat those then they can go in the green bin so how do you feel about the size of the potatoes because you've got four well three mm. reasonable sized well, one smallest and then quite a few very small yeah that's right so you know on reflection should you have left it in for longer uh well no because it was an experiment i'm just trying to see what's going on i've got another mm. i've got another six rows six short rows right of but these. will you but, yeah. leave those for no, a yeah, bit longer on the basis yeah, yeah. of what yeah, you've i would seen. have left them yeah, yeah. so yeah. um yeah so there's three decent sized potatoes there and another 10 or so which all had the potential to get bigger yeah especially in this lovely rich soil oh there's another small one <laughs> um what i'm doing now is forking over the loose soil where that plant came out look at all couple two more, more. Yep, there are probably five good-sized ones now. Um, just to find the potatoes that I missed and actually pulled the plant out. And when I, where I pulled it out, a lot of the um, potatoes just fell off. So, And then if you want to, you can start to move the soil away from the next plant and just start having a look. Mm. And you will, st you will start to see tubers from the... There you go, there's one. So I'll steal that one from the next plant and I'll cover it back up because I want those to... I want those to um, develop and <clears throat> by the way another key thing here is this soil has still got a little bit of moisture in it not much so a bit more rain over the next week would be would be really good for the potatoes um, so we'll see thank you and then uh, one other one other tip is that we've got the plant here this is the horn the stem and the leaves and then the brown not so appetising potato at the bottom and of course that's the seed potato which we are not going to eat what we're going to do with that, we're going to take the off-site, we're going to knock the compost off that's going off-site and into the green bin because uh, potatoes can harbour a whole load of diseases like I say, less likely early on in the season but here at Foster Road Allotments in Trumpington we do um, ask all tenants to take potato foliage away and put it in the um, put it in the green bin for the curbside collection I'd say successful experiment, I've got five decent sized potatoes for my supper tonight and um, the prospect of many more in the next few weeks. And I must say, they smell fantastic. Yeah, well, there Roughly you go. Lovely, a lovely earthy smell. Here's the uh, here's the reason for growing spuds. Right. Thank you very much, Dave. My pleasure, Alan. Many thanks to Dave Fox, and we'll get more harvesting tips from Dave over the next few months as new foods become ready. I've been looking through the Flavour archives recently, and I came across this piece done for Flavour by Andrew Webb, lately of BBC Radio 4's Food Programme, and also Delicious magazine. It's the first in the historical bookshelf uh, series he did for us some years ago. I don't think we've ever repeated it, and I think we should. It's very interesting, and it's about a book written by one of Charles Darwin's grandsons. <laughs> 
Hello, and welcome to the Historical Bookshelf with me, Andrew Webb. In each of these episodes, I'll be exploring a historical cookbook you might not have heard of. My first book is uh, an interesting one. It's uh, Receipts and Relishes by Bernard Darwin, and the subhead is Being a Vede Mecham for the Epicure in the British Isles, which I'm sure you'll agree is uh, quite a title, if not the most accessible. Those of you well-schooled in Latin will know that a vede mecum is Latin for walk with me and is a sort of phrase used in a guidebook or or some sort of like handbook. Interestingly, Bernard uh, was the great-grandson of Charles Darwin and uh, I sort of feel he's rather resting on his ancestral forebears here (laughs) with this slim tome. Not the earth-shattering thing that uh, Origin of the Species proved to be, but an interesting book for for the food historian nevertheless. And what he has done... uh, It's travel, or at least explore, much like my own book, Food Britannia, each county, each region, and find within that interesting dishes and historical things that relate just to that county. And I've picked it because this is published in 1950, but from the typography to the contents to the illustrations, it could have been done in 1850. The only kind of nod to modernism is the sort of cartoon maps at the back, which are beautifully rendered. But the, the, the font, the, the typography, uh, and actually what's in it is all harking, harking back to a sort of more nobler time, perhaps. And in the introduction, he goes on to say, Every man deems his own county the best, not because it is fullest of natural beauties or the best at cricket or any such arguable ground, but simply because it is his own. And... It's fascinating to think that the the love of a county spurred this book. I don't think people in today's society consider themselves uh, proud people from Essex or proud people from Cambridge or proud people from Northamptonshire or Bedfordshire or Cornwall. Some of them do, but I I feel that the the county angle doesn't really, uh, in today's sort of multi-global world... Does, has that been lost? Um, but I've picked it because I want to see what's on offer for our county of Cambridge. So let's just have a look here. We're on, we are on page 14. Uh, Cambridgeshire. Cambridge sauce. Cambridge sauce is similar to mayonnaise. Served cold with cold dishes. The ingredients are oil, vinegar, yolks of hard-boiled eggs, tarragon, chives, capers, chervil, and a little cayenne. I rather like the sound of that. I think that's a rather rather interesting sauce. I can imagine that being served on summer's evening in one of the colleges uh, with, uh, you know, poached salmon or new potatoes and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the next entry is Cambridge sausages. Cambridge sausages are made of pork and sold in skins. It says Oxford sausages used to be skinless. And I think this is kind of interesting that uh, the sausage, like the boat race and dozens of other activities, is, is too a battleground for uh, inter... Oxbridge rivalry. Oxford sausages, I've looked into the recipe of this by the way, and they uh, they uh, they feature things like, you know, herbs and lemons, uh, lemon peel and that sort of stuff. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um moving on, because we, we've obviously our, the counties have all changed since this was the the boundaries of the counties have changed a lot since this book was published. And so the county of Rutland, which uh, which was the smallest county in, in England, but it's now been sort of subsumed into Cambridge. A little this county sadly only gets one entry. Um, it gets plum shuttles, buns of an oval shape like a weaver's shuttle, carried around on Valentine's Day. They have currants and caraway seeds in them. And they're also called Valentine buns. So if there's any bakers listening, you maybe want to explore making a plum shuttle next February for Valentine's Day. 
That's a nice traditional story there. Uh, the other, the other sort of area that we probably should look at is Huntingdonshire, which again is is, is now part of Cambridgeshire. Um, uh, there's there's some interesting entries here actually. We've got obviously Stilton cheese, uh, which we which we all know, but there's Huntingdon pudding, eight ounces of flour, eggs, caster sugar, baking powder, suet. It's essentially a sort of steamed pudding. Uh, you steam it in a basin, uh, but the interesting ingredient that gives it its unique flavour and pertains it to Huntingdon is uh, gooseberries. So you mix in the gooseberries and steam it with that, and it says here, steam for three hours and serve with golden syrup. So I rather like the sound of that. Uh, there's another interesting one here with roast veal and orange. There's not really, really a recipe, it's just two ingredients really. It just says, um, this was Cromwell's favourite dish. When his wife had no oranges, she used beans instead. Which, um, one can imagine Cromwell there, warts and all, tucking into roast veal and orange. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of fascination in here, and a lot of detail and recipes and, and, and a sort of look exploring county by county some of the sort of really, really traditional things that you can still buy, but other things have, you know, consigned to the history books, uh, and this particular history book. But we've got in here things like Wilfred tarts, York's hams, Yorkshire pudding, obviously. Uh, Huckle my buff in Sussex, that sounds interesting. Lamb's ears and lardy johns. Uh, so some absolutely kind of fascinating names for things as well. I think that's the interesting thing as well. Uh, Brazenose ale, this isn't, we're in Oxfordshire now, boo. But um, yes, they don't, their sausages don't make the cut. Just lamb's wool and Oxford johns, Oxford pudding. So maybe Oxford versus Cambridge pudding. Uh, but what I think is fascinating, as I said at the beginning, is that this book was published in 1950, but to all intents and purposes wouldn't look out of place in 1850. And it came out, and, and the, it's part of that body of work in post-war with the likes of you know Florence White and Nell Heaton and Dorothy Hartley and those sorts of people, to gather together the sort of what was left of, of this, this sort of historical English cookery. And of course, the war didn't help and, and industrialisation and, and mass agriculture didn't help. And perhaps the killer blow was just a few years later, Elizabeth David's uh, Mediterranean cookbook and, and, and the sort of love of all things continental. And this, this sort of aspect of our history was completely swept away. And it's only now, sort of 50, 60, 70 years later, we're beginning to explore this and you're starting to see these sorts of dishes on menus. So there you have it, Receipts and Relishes by Bernard Darwin, published by the Naldret Press in 1950. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Historical Bookshelf, and I hope to see you again next time. Green onions signalling the start of our job section, and there's an enormous number of chef and front-of-house staff needed locally. We'll give you some from our list, but to find out more details, go to the relevant website or social media of the place you're interested in. Or you could pop in at a quiet time and see what they want. Stir Bakery needs both part-time and full-time front-of-house staff, also an early morning delivery person for Sundays and Mondays, and a part-time cake baker for Tuesdays and Wednesdays. To apply, email stirbakerycambridge at gmail.com. Cambridge Sustainable Food needs a commercial and marketing lead to help them build their reputation further. The deadline is the 11th of July and you can get more information from the Cambridge Sustainable Food website. The Ivy in Trinity Street needs a chef. Apply on the Ivy website. A head chef is needed at the Old Bicycle Shop in Regent Street. Apply online to the City Pub Company.
Downing College requires a chef de partie and a commis chef. The Eagle in Bennett Street is looking for a chef. Midsummer House wants a prep chef. Roles include general preparation and helping and assisting in the kitchen. Bills in Green Street is looking for a chef. Also in Green Street, Mercado Central needs a chef too. A food truck chef or a fish fryer is needed by Pimp My Fish. A grill chef is needed by Gourmet Kitchen Burger in Regent Street. And a chef is needed at Sticks and Shushi in Wheeler Street. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. We're here on alternate Saturdays at 12pm and repeated on Mondays at 6pm. We'll also be available on podcast early next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is Sports Special with Ollie Slack, but that's all from us. We'll be back on the 17th of July with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.